And friends, yesterday we had someone I've respected and admired for many years, a man named Mark Sayers, who's a pastor of a church called Red Church in Melbourne, and also is a, is a global leader in Christian thought and what God is doing in and amongst his church. And I'd love, could you welcome Mark as he comes and shares with us again this morning? Well, thank you so much. It's fantastic to be here and to have a chance to share again. Uh, for those who were here yesterday, and if you were meeting, or if you're meeting me the first time, hello. We're going to begin in a great place, which is the Scriptures. So we're going to turn to the Bible. And uh, if you have your Bibles, or if you have an app, if you don't have an app, you have a phone, you have Google. Uh, so there is no excuse anymore not to have Scriptures in front of us. Uh, we're going to begin uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Now, yesterday, I preached, uh, began with Genesis 1, verse 1. In Genesis 1, verse 1, you have this set of images. You have the world at its very beginning. And in the waters, this unformed earth is just there. And it begins by saying that hovering over those waters is the Spirit. You have this image of like unformed earth, Spirit hovering, and this is an image of this moment just before creation. Now, those images are also very much present. And this, this little passage we're about to read is actually riffing off what happens in Genesis 1. So keep those images in your mind. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This time, we don't have unformed earth, but we sort of do. In the Genesis accounts of the creation of Adam. Adam, in the word in Hebrew, is linked to earth. So we do have earth. In fact, earth here is the people. And we have that beautiful image in the creation of humans in, in Genesis, where the Spirit is breathed by God, by His breath, into this unformed earth, this clay, and coming together of earth, this thing of the earth, and God's Spirit, this thing of heaven, this intermingling of heaven and earth is actually what creates human beings. That's what creates you. That's who you are. And so we have that moment again, but this is a new creation. This isn't the first creation, this is a new creation. This is not the new, this is a renewing. And the Spirit is hovering over this moment. This moment is when the church is birthed. This moment is the ancestor of this moment. The reason we are here on a Sunday morning is because of what happened 2,000 years ago in this small room on a second story in Jerusalem. So just hold that image. Now, as I was introduced, my name is Mark Sayers. Sayers is my family name. I'm the son of Gary and Joy. My grandfather was Reginald Sayers, known as Tommy. My grandmother was Audrey Sayers, known as Jane. For some reason, my family had a thing with nicknames. And my dad grew up in a part of Melbourne 
which is the inner north. Now, the inner north has changed tremendously since my dad grew up there. There was an article in our paper last week, and it was basically how the population around the inner north of Melbourne in many of these municipalities, LGAs, actually declined um, during the last two years. And this is quite a novelty in uh, Melbourne because life in Melbourne, as I've lived it, has just been this continual growth of people. And you notice this. You notice you go to a part of town and you haven't been there, say, for a few years, and you go there and you almost can't recognise it because there's just so many new buildings and apartments growing everywhere. Where I grew up, um, Box Hill, uh, it's now, it was just a mall, like a suburban mall when I was a boy and hanging out there as a teenager. But now it's like going to become, it's got so many different skyscrapers going up. It's going to be a bigger CBD than I think Hobart and Adelaide. So just continual growth. There's these places where in your head you haven't been to that suburb for a few years. You go, oh, it takes me 15 minutes to get there. And then you get in your car and it takes you 25 minutes because there are just so many more people around. That stopped now. Melbourne has not been growing. Melbourne's population is declining. The trajectory was that Melbourne was going to overtake Sydney uh, at some point, but now that storyline has shifted. Melbourne had this problem of growth, which was making life more difficult, but what is wonderful is now we've given that to you. <laughs> we've sent you our excess Victorians. I hope you enjoy the traffic. In fact, I'm encouraging more to come up. Maybe another lockdown. Watch out. Head north. Um, but what's interesting is, these particular areas that decline, one of the reasons that inner north declined is that many people living there were just people living in an apartment by themselves. Many were backpackers, overseas students, people who moved to the inner city, it's where the cafes were, it's where the culture was, the bars, entertainment, close to the city, this was the cool place to be. It was a place which had gentrified uh, when people move in. And so when the pandemic came, it was really easy for those people to move because they did not have these deep relational links. There was community as we talk about it. Often we think about community now. It's like, oh, there's a bunch of people in a cafe and wow, there's a theater performance around there or, or there's some street art. But when my family grew up in that area, my grandfather, my father, all my cousins and uncles and all of this grew up in that area, it was really, really different world. It was a world that was filled with deep relational connection. It was a community which many of them had lived through the Depression. It was a working-class neighbourhood. My grandfather um, worked as a bus driver. He had two jobs to sort of make ends meet. He worked at a bus driver and then he worked um, delivering newspapers from the, the Sun newspaper factory. And it was really interesting. One of the things that sort of emerged from the Depression was this sort of like... I call it the economy of mates. So what that looked like was you were mates with the milkman, you were mates with the grocer, you were mates with the fruiterer, you were mates maybe with the bookie, you were mates with everyone, and so you kept things aside for your mates. So the bloke who delivered the milk, he just would keep a couple of milk uh, bottles aside for his mates. And what would happen, he'd deliver them, and the guy who like, gave you butter, he put a little bit of butter aside. And everyone had just left a little few things aside. They'd fallen off the back of the truck. And it was just like, oh, you got it. here's a paper, here's a, here's a bottle of milk. Yeah, bet on that. And it was just this entire economy which sort of operated in the grey zone. Let's just call it the Ned Kelly zone. 
um, of Australian larrikinism. But this is what people did. People did this to get by, and it was this deep connection. It was also a place where all these different connections. Now, what's really interesting, my family were not Christians. My dad came to faith at around 17. But what was so interesting is that this whole people, this is, this is you know, a non-churched Australia going way back, but they were connected in this deep world of relationships. My, my grandfather was a trade unionist, deeply connected in his union. He, people went to the Masonic Lodge. People went to... Back then, how you met people and got married was the local LGA, your local council, saw it as their duty to put on dances, and you met someone at the local dance at the Preston Town Hall. This is how people got together back then. You didn't have online dating apps, you had your local council who was gonna help you meet someone. And so all this stuff would happen. And it was this complete web where you knew everyone's names. There were all these institutions, these community groups, and they just built this sinews. Think about it as like this deep connective. It's like this network of all these different relationships. So you knew that guy, you played footy with him, and you bought milk off her, and you were in a union with him, and, and, and you knew this person. So this deep sort of connected world. And this also meant that this kept you in line. Now, my dad's cousin, who I think is my second cousin, that's how it works, he, around 17, started to muck up a bit. And he started to think he was quite tough. And so he started to muck up down at the shops. Now, that happens today, and, oh, people are fretting, and what do we do about it? But back then, because this was a tightly knit community, the older blokes got together and had a chat about this. What do we do about him? Now, also, one of the institutions at the time was the local police boys' club, and of course, everyone's mates, everyone's mates with the police sergeant, and the police sergeant would teach the boys, you know, boxing and different sport down at the local police. They didn't have a gym then, like no one's going to fitness first. It was like proper go and do boxing with the local police sergeant. That's how you kept fit. And so basically what they do is they have a chat to their mate who's the police sergeant who they play footy with, and they say, here's my, my dad's cousin. He's causing trouble down the shops. Teach him how to box but also teach him a lesson. And so he goes for his first boxing lesson and all the older blokes turn up and he gets taught a lesson. <laughs> and the lesson there is the classic Australian thing back then of pull your head in, mate. <laughs> and this is a deep social conditioning. This is social formation as existed back then. So this was a whole world where you got formed in a particular way, you were connected in deep relationships. People had learned through things like the Depression and the wars that actually you needed community. When crisis came along, you needed community. I was in the Salvation Army for, for many years. My wife and I met in the Salvation Army. It's still amazing today when you go in a Salvation Army uniform of people just coming up and giving you money. Now, what's really interesting, that's not the same all around the world. It's not the same, say, in the United States. Part of the reason the Salvos have this incredible public persona is because, or profile, is because during the Depression, they were one of those places that people looked to. It was, you didn't have the government programs that we have these days. So this is this knitted world that people lived in. But what's happened is, <coughs> things have began to unravel. It began perhaps in the 1960s. In the 1970s, Australia began to move from a country which was sort of like medium uh, in terms of sort of economic uh, development to actually its ascent to one of the richest countries in the world. Just, I think it was in 2017, Credit Suisse 
on their analytics basically said Australians, when you look at everything that they have before them, are the wealthiest people in the world. And so what this meant was the social sort of ties of connection to others, of community, of all these institutions that people went to, country women's associations, all this stuff which used to be so sinews of our, our, our culture, all of it began to untighten. If you can imagine there's a force where those things come together in a crisis like the Great Depression or World War I, then it begins to move outwards. And people, as they have more time, they've got more money, they've got more options, they begin to value things differently. Less it's about community, less it's about sacrificing to be part of a whole, more it's about expanding my options and enjoying my lifestyle. And over those decades, Australia shifts. And Australia shifts to a culture where we understand that we have this really enviable lifestyle compared to many places in the world. You just look at even what this area stands for. When you talk to people in Europe, oh, they, they understand some of these parts of Australia. They've visited, they get it. What it says is, here's a particular lifestyle. This is why people move from Victoria to places like this. There is a lifestyle. But then there's this accompanying social phenomenon of what happens with this, that as we pursue options and as we pursue certain things, we lose certain things. And you've got this unravelling that is happening. Now, this has been playing out in the church. Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone, and what it's about is about the erosion of community life. And often people talk about, well, the church is declining, but he makes a point in that book, so are bowling leagues in America. It used to be bastions of American community, but the bowling league on a Wednesday night, they're declining. Masonic lodges, community organizations, trade unions, political parties, all of these different places where people used to gather are actually declining. And what this means is, we're at this point where we've gained something, but we've lost something. And in the church, we've understood this tension. So what church leaders have done really over the last sort of 20 or 30 years, that people are not going to come because that's just what they do, and they're in this habit of coming, some of that is still there. There's still residue from the past, and people still walking out those patterns, so we've got to sort of change the equation a little bit. What we've got to actually do is we've actually got to encourage people to come, put more things on. And so we do things. We have coffee, great car parking, awesome events. The standard of production goes up. And all of this has been done also at the same time as we realize that increasingly people are sort of shedding any cultural adherence to Christian faith in our culture. We see that in the latest census. So we're in this weird zone for the last sort of 20, 10 years where we are now encouraging you to come because here's the stuff we can give you versus you coming to give. Then we hit this moment, a circuit breaker. We hit a pandemic. And you hit this pandemic, and at the beginning, everyone thinks it's going to be an event, like you see an event on TV, maybe 9-11 or something, you know, the global financial crisis or something which often, you know, Australia didn't really get affected by compared to other countries in the world. You see it on TV and we're used to these events happening all the time. We go to events, we go to the big concert, we go to the big football game, we go to an event. So something like this happens and we think it's going to be an event. But it keeps going. In my city, it went for a long time. And so the pattern that people had fallen into, there were people who came to church because that's what their mum and dad did or that's what their mates did or that's what they're just in the habit of doing and they're good sort of like bang it out, habitual people. All of a sudden that breaks 
and things start to really unravel. And all of a sudden, you don't need to come because the social force is not making you come anymore. And so I've just been fascinated how across the world, and I've spoken to leaders all across the world, and even in some places and countries where they barely lock down at all, and like a third of their, their congregation doesn't come back after just not having church for like a few weeks. And this pattern breaks. And so we're at this moment where this great, what George Packer, this American writer, calls this unraveling. And the unraveling's been happening in the culture, but what the pandemic showed is actually the, the unraveling has also been happening in the church. But then there's this weird dynamic that's happening at the moment. Part of the reason that that unraveling had been going on <coughs> is we got to live in this incredible moment in history where America had been dominant in the world, Russia had fallen, the Soviet Union had fallen, peace seemed to be in the world. We created this economic thing where you could press a button on Amazon and something in China would be sent to you and you'd get it almost straight away. You could download the movie you wanted when you wanted it. You could just get stuff instantaneously. All of a sudden, any food in the world, you wanted to make some obscure Arabic dish, you can get those ingredients. You can get stuff out of season and we've got this incredible world where you can order a car and, and it's already been made in a factory in this just-in-time reality by Toyota, and it's going to come to you, and everything just seemed to be getting better and better and better. Easy to fly around the world. You can use your Uber app in London and then go to, go to Tokyo and use it there. And the world seemed to be getting better, and we we're promising people more things, promising our young people. Everyone gets a prize when we pass the parcel, promising people that we can push away all of the terrible things that humans have done, and we're just going to like slowly glide to this wonderful world, and everything's going to get better. But then reality comes. And it's like a brilliant brand new car you've paid lots of money for and you drive it for four years and it's fantastic. But then one circuit goes out there, some software there, and the whole system begins to short circuit. And so this world, which we thought was normal, which delivered this incredible standard of living, we're realizing is not normal now. And it's not just COVID, it's not just the, an event, it's actually a process that we went into. It's sort of still here in weird ways, but even if it sort of fades away, the economic effects of COVID, the geopolitical effects, we see a war in Ukraine, we now potentially could be on the precipice of a war in Asia. And so we hit these crises, but we forget something. The crises are exactly the moment where expanding your freedom doesn't work anymore. Expanding your options, not committing so that you can build this perfect lifestyle to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Actually, in crises, you need those sinews. You need those connection points. You need people to rely on. Helen Thompson, the British journalist, said that we've now switched. For years, governments said to us, we don't actually need you to do anything. Just maybe vote, and we'll just give you stuff. And we don't want to ask anything. Be what you want to be. Do what you want to do. We're here to serve you. All of a sudden, we hit a world of crises and governments are asking stuff of us. In my state, we were asked to massively sacrifice for the whole. That's the first time people experienced that. Throughout most of history, humans have had to massively sacrifice for the whole. But we've been taught in the last 20 years, you don't have to do that. Just build your own life, construct this lifestyle for yourself. So we're now moving into this world where the perfect world is it worked like a just-in-time production it's actually starting to short-circuit. We're facing multiple challenges, and everything from energy to 
<laughs> supply chains to health and mental health, and all of this is happening at this point in time. And it's also happening in the church. Less volunteerism. We're at the point where we have a beautiful generation, and often denigrated, and I just really can't stand generation bashing, whether it's people bashing millennials or boomers or whatever it may be. We have a wonderful generation of older people in the church who actually may be the last step in a movement that possibly went for 150 years, where God moved amongst people in revivals and awakenings that happened over a century ago. Institutions were built. My parents met at a Youth for Christ rally uh, back in the 1960s. My wife's parents, both migrants from Northern Ireland, came and were introduced to each other as migrants from Northern Ireland. They got married at a Youth for Christ rally. I am here because someone put on an event for young adults to meet each other. My children are here, my wife's here, and that was actually an onflow of what was happening with Billy Graham going around Australia, actually preaching the gospel in all the sports stadiums of Australia. Everything that has happened, that so much of the things we sit in, these buildings, these, these different foundations, Christian schools, all of this has happened because of earlier moves of God where people massively sacrificed. And it's like a car which has been powered by revivals and awakenings and moves of God. And when you take the foot off the accelerator and you're on a freeway, you're going to keep going for some time. And so I think for the last sort of few decades, <coughs> we've been moving on the freeway, but we've had our, our foot off the accelerator. And so we're getting to the point now where the car's about to stop. What will that look like? As the beautiful generation, which is in our churches, which saw some of that in their parents and grandparents, who were discipled by really godly people. At some stage, they have to hand across the baton, move into retirement homes, and some will pass. This is the way of human life. And so what we're looking at is the ages of our church. The average age in the Australian church is really quite high. And if you go to any church, often, you know, I speak at lots of churches, 75% of people often in churches I'm at are in the retirement age group. Now, the next 10, 15 years, that's going to play out demographically. So what you're going to see is you're going to see the Australian church shrink significantly demographically. This is a crisis. So we're at a point where we're hitting world crises, the church is hitting a crisis, but in the crisis, we've still got a call to be the people of God to actually be the kingdom of God embodied and enfleshed in a human community. In 1682, Germany experienced a devastating pandemic, a devastating pandemic. Two-thirds of people died in many areas. It was just absolutely ripped the social fabric apart. Following pandemics, often, as we're experiencing now, come economic crises. Now, the total society was ripped apart in its absolute fabric. But what was interesting, a few years after this, in its wake, this remarkable rebuilding occurred. Within a few years, a whole raft of institutions and community groups were launched. Schools, orphanages, bookstores, museums, chemical laboratories, hospitals, bakeries, farms, agricultural developments, all these different social enterprises were birthed in the wake of this crisis. How did this happen? Well, one man, a guy called August Frank, basically walked in the wake of this pandemic and saw the devastation that happened in his community. And he clicked in to a pattern which he'd heard of from generations earlier. Generations earlier, 
There was a German man named Martin Luther, and Martin Luther had this idea that the church would be renewed by what he called the little church in the church, a remnant. And this remnant who said yes to Jesus with all of their heart, who got together, God would spring something out of them. And what Frank does is he begins that again. He starts meeting with a small group in these areas devastated by the plague, and God starts to grow them. And out of this renewal that they're having personally, that forms this remnant. And then out of that remnant, you have this really revival that's not just a revival. It is brilliant things happen spiritually, but also flows out into the world and remakes the social fabric of the culture at that time. And this is a pattern that you'll see again and again in history. This small groups of people which change the world. We're so obsessed with big marketing campaigns and huge top-down change. We don't realize that the people of God, society, is continually changed, often from bottom-up change when small groups get together and press into God. This is a theology of the remnant. This is the idea that if you look at the biblical story, <coughs> there was this continual reality that while Israel may have gone and worshipped other gods, there was always a faithful remnant. There was always a prophetic remnant. When Jesus the Messiah finally comes, you have these beautiful moments where people like Simeon and Anna encounter that story, <coughs> pardon me, who have been evidence of that in Israel there's a faithful remnant that's always been there. You've got this reality that God uses that. We see that too in the history of the church. I talked yesterday about the story that Britain was completely turned around. It spread out from Britain all across the world in the 18th century when a small group of men began to meet as students at Oxford University, called themselves the Holy Club. People mocked them. They called them the Bible moths. Well, that's a devastating takedown, isn't it? They called them insultingly the Methodists. A name they actually took on for themselves. And they actually then began to become this cell of explosive growth, which then went out from that, gro that group. And these insecure young men who in their diaries talk about struggling with lust and insecurity and pride, God transforms them and they become some of the greatest evangelists. And then you have something called the Great Awakening. And the story of where Britain was heading is completely changed at that point in time. The country of Wales is completely turned upside down to the point where in certain villages and towns, the police force were not needed when God comes and speaks to around 12 or 11 young adults in one evening service in a small church in Wales, <coughs> birthing what we now know as the Welsh Revival. Revivals spring from remnants. And see, we think about the church, we think about the church, we, we think about the church and the people outside the church, but we don't realize there's actually three divisions, really. There's the people outside the church, there's the people in the church, and then often in the church there is a remnant. They're not always the people who are the people in leadership. They're sometimes not even the person leading the church. But the people who have a heart for what God wants to do and are saying yes to what God wants to do. And when you get those people together, something happens. Gerald McDermott says this, Anglican theologian, talking about the pattern of the remnant. We see the same pattern in Jesus' ministry. Why didn't he spend much time with the crowds? Why didn't he go after them when they wandered after getting fed or when they turned away in repulsion because of his hard sayings? Instead, he spent the vast majority of his time with the remnant, the 12. He went deep with them 
and trusted that their inner life, which he cultivated for three years, would radiate, their lives would attract others. See, revivals burst from remnants because those groups may be small in number, but they're strong in God's presence. The remnant becomes a living and breathing alternative vision showcasing the spiritual health and vitality that comes from when we cry out for God to move. Remnants are the physical form of the renewal. The remnant models the life of Jesus, who vicariously served the whole. They don't turn their nose up at the rest of people in church. They don't hide away from the world. They actually give their lives to renew the church and the world through living a sacrificial prophetic life. That's the remnant serves the broader church and culture by living for others, for living for God. Now, we began with the story of that moment when the Holy Spirit falls in the book of Acts. It'd be amazing to be there, to see the fire, to see Peter transform from someone who Jesus is calling, get behind me, Satan, to someone preaching the gospel in this incredible way. To see people hearing the gospel preached in, the tongues that they stood, their mother tongue, as these people had the gift of tongues to communicate across the language divide. Incredible to see that. We try and replicate that in so much of what we do as a church. We try and put on these events that will somehow look like Pentecost. But just as a pandemic is not an event, it's a process. Just as crises are not events you see on TV, they're a process you live through. Remnants are processes. Now, what happens in the upper room? You have to ask, why is this happening in an upper room? Where are the thousands who follow Jesus? Why is this not happening in the Superdome mega stadium in downtown Jerusalem with 50,000 people? Why is it in a small upper room that's probably really small? Why is it such a handful? Well, when we go back to Acts 1, verse 4, we start to understand why. Talking about Jesus, and it says this, On one occasion, Jesus was eating with them. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They want a defining event moment where the Romans are kicked out and it all happens and that's what they're hoping for. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times nor dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's given them a process. The room is small because only a few enter into this process. These are the ones who stuck with Jesus, these are the ones, therefore, who saw the resurrection. And what happens is they then don't have this definite three-point plan (coughs) of what to do. They're to wait patiently, waiting, contending, praying. Pentecost happens in the middle of something else that they were already doing. What were they doing? They were being a remnant, waiting on the Holy Spirit to move, worshipping. They were waiting for God to again move amongst them. They were obedient to what Jesus had called them to. And it's that moment that there's an event in the midst of the process And we see that the Holy Spirit then breaks out and goes into the world. So this provides us with an invitation. The invitation is, 
at this moment, crisis, crises in the world. Crisis in the church. In the midst of the crisis, there is a deep desire many people feel for God to renew the church, to renew culture, to change the trajectory of the world. But there's an accompanying invitation The invitation is an invitation to the process. The invitation is to get in the upper room. To get in the room. The room is small. It's a minority. It's not everyone. To get in the room means that you're actually building out this life and you're doing these things and you're rebuilding those sinews. We need a renewal, but we also need a rebuilding. And at this point in time, when it's easy to break the patterns and to fall out of the patterns of the Christian life, it's a key moment to remind ourselves that brilliant things are built with patterns when we pattern ourselves after the life of Jesus. We can't anymore live off previous renewals. The car soon is going to roll to a halt. We need a new press on the accelerator. We need a new move of God. There is an invitation before the church to actually again press in. Business as usual is not going to do it anymore. Stasis will actually equal death. Doing the same things and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. This is a moment before us is an invitation. Before you is an invitation to be part of the thing that God is doing. What is it exactly that God calls you to do? I'm not going to give you an answer, but I will give you a framework of press in, find others who have a heart after what God wants to do. Get together, pray, meet around the scriptures. This is simple stuff. Sacrificially carve out time for him and he will reward you. The prize of surrender is revelation of God's presence. What if somehow that DNA that we we see in that group in Oxford in the 18th century, a handful of guys, what if that Methodist DNA is also part of your denomination? What if it's still there? What if just as August Frank realized in his denominational heritage that he had this, this, this DNA that Martin Luther had put there a couple centuries earlier of actually being the little church which serves the bigger church through giving all their lives for God? What if that DNA of Charles and John Wesley, of, of George Whitfield, all these people is actually in this denomination? What are those incredible moments in the history of the Presbyterian Church where in cold Scottish nights, men and women got together and prayed for God to move, centering around the Scriptures, connecting with God's Word again? What if that DNA is actually in this room? What if that DNA is in you? And what if before you there were grandparents, great-grandparents who prayed for you that God would use your life, people who prayed for this church who are now no longer with us? You have the DNA of the remnant in you. Activate that DNA. Say yes to God. We're at a moment. The time for nice platitudinal sermons is over. There is a choice before us. We have to step in. This is not just for this church. It's not just for you. This is for our nation. This is for our world at the moment. Let's pray. Let's stand and let's pray and ask God to move at this moment. The band's going to come forward.
just in this quiet moment, we recognize that the moment in Genesis 1 of quietness, of unformness, where chaos sat on the earth, but the Spirit was hovering, and we just want to recognize that the Spirit was hovering then, the Spirit is hovering now. We recognize how many nights, I wonder, Father, did the disciples meet? Only you know. But on that night of Pentecost, the Spirit hovered and the Spirit fell. So we just don't want to recognize the Holy Spirit's presence. So we just pray, come Holy Spirit, not because the Spirit needs to come into the room, rather the Spirit needs to come into our hearts. So we just steal our hearts at this moment. God, we're, we're done with making church 2% better, making our lives 2% better. God, we're done with searching endlessly for more options. We're done with getting more stuff. We're done with accruing more experiences. God, we're done with accruing more experiences. We need encounter. We need an encounter with you, the living God, at this time. And Father, I just want to thank you that in this room, before I spoke today, that in the last few months, years, you've been drawing a remnant to you, that you've been calling people, calling them to say yes to you in big and small ways. I want to thank you, Father, that there are people who are real saints in the faith have been walking out this journey for decades and decades and been praying for God to move, that they still pray with faith and courage. People who knew people who've way past now, but from previous generations when you moved. I thank you, Father, for those faithful saints who are still praying for you to move. God, I want to thank you for the younger people in this room who you're calling to be the generation who, again, with your power, puts the foot on the accelerator, builds something new, enters into a process, knits new realities through following you. God, I want to pray for people at a midpoint in their lives, maybe raising kids, maybe acutely feeling the absence of kids, perhaps looking back and realizing that there needs to be a change. Thank you for drawing them. Thank you for drawing people in this room, Father. And I just pray for divine appointments between people who are called to be part of this remnant in this room. That sense to meet together, connect, not because even, maybe just people you wouldn't even normally connect with. Father, just pray that you connect people with holy bonds built around prayer and sacrifice. Knit something again in this time we ask. More holy clubs, more 11 young adults in that Welsh small church more little churches in the church like in Germany in 1682. God, we pray you do a new thing. We put down our agendas. We say yes to you. We want a different path. We want a different story for our nation. We reject the story that <coughs> faith is just going to fade away in this country. Father, we pray that you do a new thing. We pray your fire will come. God, we pray that this crisis doesn't go to waste. We pray for your renewal. Birth a remnant amongst us, we ask.